Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and today on Better Off, we have scientist and author Frederica Fabricius. Every day, you take some time out of your schedule to focus on what you're grateful on. So, for example, you can have a gratitude diary, and you write down five things that you've been grateful about that day. And what happens is that your immune system improves, your energy levels go up, you feel better about yourself. It really has a much better impact than many other techniques out there. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. This is the show where we provide unconventional and hopefully entertaining insights on your money and your life. I'm Jill Schlesinger, and today we've got an interview that I recorded a little while ago when I was feeling somewhat under the weather. So you're going to hear my scratchy voice, and I apologize for that in advance. But this is a great interview. It is with Frederica Fabricius, and the reason why I wanted to have her on the program is she wrote a book called The Leading Brain. Now, Mark just made fun of me. He's like, you know, you and the brain, you love anything brain related. I just like the idea that there are certain things that go on in the human brain that it's almost like you have to accept it before you move on and try to change some of your behavior. And so the book is called The Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. So I I like the science part. I love the cutting-edge guide. It's so cool. We all want to sharpen our performance. We want some innovation. We want to feel better about ourselves. But most importantly, you want to cut yourself some slack. And that's why I think it's really good to understand how our brains work before we start judging ourselves or others too harshly. So stay tuned to our interview with Frederica Fabricius. And please, in terms of that judgment thing, it was hard for me too. But when you hear her answer to her best financial decision, don't judge her too harshly. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, Frederica, before we get into the book, let's ask the most important question, the best money decision you've ever made. I hate to say it, but I think it was marrying my wonderful husband. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but wait a second. Explain. Because he had a lot of money or what? You know, it makes me financially independent so I can really follow my dreams and do things that I love. Like writing a book, it allows me to really be free. I can do what I love. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your background. So you were neuroscience kind of chick. You were studying like hardcore science in school. And then what happened? Like, how how did you come into that? Well... For me, the big question has always been, why do people behave the way they do? I love to understand human behavior. So I studied neuroscience. I tried to find the answers in the brain. And when I was at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research with two monkeys in a laboratory all day, I wasn't getting anywhere at Wait a minute. That, Mark and I could be two monkeys in a studio. That sounds just <laughs> like us. All right. Two, yeah. monkeys in a, two monkeys in a studio, it's a little different than two monkeys in a lab. It wasn't... You know, it wasn't really getting me anywhere and getting my big questions answered. So I joined McKinsey instead. So I've been a management consulting for a couple of years. And this has really given me the, you know, the the piece of reality. I really wanted to understand what people do in business, why they behave the way they do. But I wasn't making people's lives better. Hmm. I have, you know, the ambition of making the world a better place and helping people lead better lives. And as a psychologist, I think I can also help people with that. So now you, you've you gone through and done a lot of research, and you've written this book, 
Talk a little bit about some of the the science behind how we process information, how we behave. What is it that drew you to this? You have to know I work with top executives and something they really care about is performance. They have to constantly perform. They always have to be at their top. And the question is, how do you do that? And there's a formula for it. Um, in the book, it's called the DNA of peak performance. And research shows that there's three substances we need in the brain in order to perform well. The D stands for dopamine. We need a good dose of dopamine release in order to perform at our best. And dopamine is a substance that makes us happy, that gives us, uh, that is released when we're having fun. It helps people to learn better. It makes your prefrontal cortex work better, which is the part of the brain for rational analytical thinking. So you need fun at work to perform well. You also need a good dose of fear. Um, Yeah, I also call it fun, fear, and focus, which is much easier to remember. Oh, I like that. um, Fun, fear, focus. Yeah, so the fun you get, if you're having fun at work, you're getting the dopamine. When you're having a little bit of fear, when you're slightly over-challenged, you're getting a good dose of noradrenaline. It's a positive stress hormone. So you need to be challenging yourself. If you feel you're working on autopilot, you're not getting anywhere. And then there's the focus part which I think has been very much neglected in many companies in the past years, you need to be able to fully focus on what you're doing, uninterrupted time where you can really think. Fun and fear seem to happen almost very naturally for Mm -hmm. people. Like you're in the situation. I'm in a studio. I'm interviewing this really smart woman. That's fun for me, right? Fear is like, oh, my God, she's so smart. I've got to stay on my game, which is why I actually read the book and, you know, fold pages down and and make myself nuts. But again, I think the focus is really hard for people. And, And especially if you're talking about people who are in businesses, because on one hand, it's easy for me to be in this studio and focus on you. I don't have my computer up. Notice, like, I used, I started doing these things, and I'm like, ah, shut the computer down. I don't want to look at it. Mm. Um, but when in my day-to-day, I've got to keep my email up and alive and, 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 you know, because what if CBS wants to get me for something, right? But then every time I kind of shift over there and look at that, I get distracted, and then I'm, I'm out of that, that cool, fun, fear flow. How, what should we be doing that, to better focus? Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's only natural. We have that tendency to look for new things. The, the brain is craving novelty. And that's why we're constantly distracting ourselves. So there's a biological reason why it's so hard to focus. It's also doing good things for us. We're always watching out for the next big thing. In order to focus better, there's one remedy I recommend, and I call it a meeting of one. When people are in a meeting with other people, usually everybody assumes you're not going to be disturbed. You can put a sign on the door, I'm in a meeting, and everybody understands that from 10 to 11, you're not available. Nobody calls you, no emails. Right. But when you're by yourself in your office, people love to come in and, oh, hi, Jill, how's it going? And then you look at your watch, half an hour is gone. Right. So you need to make time for yourself. We tend to think... We can multitask. You call this the multitasking myth. And I love this because I'm just going to read from the book, page 81. I'm sure you've memorized it. (laughs) When you think you are multitasking, what you are probably doing is sequential task switching. You shift your focus rapidly back and forth between multiple activities. So I am not reading and writing and listening all at the same time. So what happens in my brain 
when I think I'm multitasking? What's going on? You're switching back and forth. And multitasking would be defined as that you're able to do several activities at once that require your prefrontal cortex. What does that mean? For example, having an intelligent conversation and writing a smart email at the same time. When people are multitasking, usually they're not truly multitasking. They are, for example, ironing a shirt. And at the same time, they talk to somebody. That's not multitasking. Because for ironing the shirt, given that you do that on a regular basis, you're doing that with a part of your brain that is called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is where automatic things happen, habits. So if you drive with your car to work every day, you do that mostly with your basal ganglia, whereas somebody who drives for the first time is going to do that with his prefrontal cortex. You have to concentrate. Uh-huh. So if you, there are certain tasks we can do in parallel, but it's because they don't require all prefrontal cortex. So we are not able, multitasking is a myth. It's impossible to do two things at once that require the full attention of our prefrontal cortex. And what was interesting is as I was read through and, and I, the science mm-hmm. behind it is also that there is a there's a price to pay for even trying to multitask because you're wasting the time to kind of refocus back into whatever you believe mm-hmm. was your original thing. So again, I'm writing an email and then all of a sudden the phone rings and I'm talking to somebody and sort of kind of looking at the email and trying to finish up. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when you talk to your spouse sometimes. I don't know if you have a spouse like this, but I hear click, 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 click. And I'm like, honey, I'm talking to you. And so right. obviously you can't do those two things at once. What happens in the brain to try to refocus and, and what, what are we losing in productivity as a result? Yeah, you constantly have to switch. And this switching takes up a lot of time, and it takes you up to 20 minutes to refocus again. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, really, you got to, like, shut it down, and whatever that, whatever that thing is that you think you're going to be doing mm-hmm. and requires that focus, turn your phone off, turn your email off, turn your social media off. This is hard for people to do. It's very hard. And people are addicted. You can see that studies show that there's an addiction pattern. People are addicted to their smartphones. It's not, I'm not joking here. You can see that the dopamine system, the reward system for that is also handling addiction is very involved. When people look at their smartphone, it's almost as if they were looking at their loved ones. So wait a second. If you're going out to dinner with friends... And you're of a certain age. You're younger than I am. But I am of a certain age where it's weird for me to have people have their phones out at a meal. It still is. is. And it is. And, you know, I think what's happening is that people have a lot of their social contacts in their phones. Because here we're not talking about work. We're really talking about social connectivity. And I think there's a very strong need for people to be connected to others. We want to be part of a group that's part of our of evolution. The brain is very, very social. So I think for many people, the smartphone has become a way to feel part of a group. When they do that while you're present, they misunderstand that they should be focusing on you and that you could be their social. Right. I mean, so there's yeah. like a generational moment because mm-hmm. I, I will be sitting at a table with, you know, my contemporaries and we'll look over at a table of 30 year olds and there may be eight people there and they're all checking their phones at dinner together and we're like well look at those crazy kids obviously when you're looking at a screen you're not focusing on the person in front of you I imagine like even when you go into a big business and you're consult when you were at McKinsey and you go in there there are now companies where they say you have to drop your phone 
off into like a little basket before mm-hmm, you go into a mm-hmm. meeting because everybody's basically not paying attention. And I think that's good. People are too distracted. I see that all over the place. Many companies are installing mindfulness training to combat that, to help people to, to focus better. I'm doing that also. You know, mm-hmm. I started meditating. You did, if you saw me a year ago, I was much uh, more uptight. Right, Mark? I was. He's laughing at me. I'm trying. I'm just trying. I mean, like you said, it's just like it's a practice and you got to kind of get into it. Talk a little bit about the science of what happens with gratitude. This was so fascinating to me because I'm thinking, well, gratitude is something that, you know, pretty much everybody has. But what's the science behind it? How does it impact us? Yeah. What is meant by this gratitude training is that every day you take some time out of your schedule to focus on what you're grateful on. So, for example, you can have a gratitude diary and you write down five things that you've been grateful on that about that day. And what happens is that your immune system improves, your energy levels go up, um, you feel better about yourself, your sel- sense of self-worth improves. It really has a much better impact than many other techniques out there. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Frederica Fabricius in a minute. And uh, I love that concept of gratitude. I really do. I think that every day having that moment where you just are feeling good about something in your life. I'll tell you what, I feel really grateful for the fact that more and more of us can take control of our financial lives because technology has improved so much. And that is why I am so delighted that Betterment is the sponsor of this show. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor. And, you know, they've built a service to help improve your long-term investment returns and lower your taxes. And I think that that's something that's remarkable. You know, when I got into the financial services business decades ago, can't believe I have to say that, decades ago. In order to get that kind of service, you had to pay a ton of money. You know that when you bought a mutual fund, when I entered this business, people paid a commission of eight and a quarter percent for a mutual fund. Well, now with a service like Betterment, you've got low transparent advisory fees, especially when you compare that to traditional services. A quarter of 1% on the assets under management. You can even upgrade for access to a CFP or a licensed financial expert. Boy, if you don't want to feel grateful for something really important in your life, how about feeling grateful for the fact that you can invest for less? So for that, I think we should all feel pretty grateful. And right now, Better Off listeners can get up to six months managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. Betterment. Rethink what your money can do and feel grateful for it, will you? And now back to our interview with Frederica Fabricius. Why does negativity have such a big impact, though? Okay, I'm going to tell you a funny story about Mm -hmm. myself. Very self-disclosing, doctor. I feel like I'm on the couch. When I was managing money, you know, whatever, 20 years ago, and um, one year I made like a really horrible trade. And what I did was I, I stuck up the name of the trade that I made. I just put it up on my tack board. My thought was like, never forget that. Very Jewish, right? Never forget. I have to go focus on this thing. And uh, a friend of mine who was a psychologist walked into my office once and said, what's that? I said, oh my God, that's the worst trade you ever made. I ever made like in the last five years. 
And he's like, that's funny. Why don't you put the good trade up? <laughs> so talk a little bit about negativity and what that does to us. And why yeah. does it last so long? Our brain has a built-in negativity bias. So negative stimuli are processed nine times as strongly as positive ones. What? Yeah, nine times? Crazy. Yes. All I'm right. Serious. Wait. A, okay. So, all right. Keep going. I'm sorry. And this is serious. I think this is at the very core of our human nature because what that means is that our brains are not neutral. People used to think, you know, it's just like a computer. You give input some information and then it's processed. No, it's a built-in system. So let's say your boss gives you feedback mm -hmm. and he says, oh, Jill, you've done great on the show and you had many listeners and whatever. There's little one little thing I want you to improve. One year later, what are you going to remember? The one negative thing he said. Why? That's so crazy. So what can I do to combat that negativity? Mm -hmm. How right. can I get over that? I think the best way to combat negative emotions is by using your body. How so? I seriously believe that because if you most people when they want to combat negative emotions they use a part of the brain that's called the prefrontal cortex you know that's the part for inhibition delayed gratification all kinds of higher cognitive processing so you inhibit your feelings it's called cognitive inhibition and it doesn't work it's the most popular technique all of the time when i have coaches they always tell me you know i went to that meeting and i tried to pretend to be happy it doesn't work. Our, when our prefrontal cortex and the limbic system are in a fight, the limbic system always wins. Wow. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the, the happiness mm -hmm. factor here because, you know, there's a lot of like prattling on about be happy and everything. You don't buy into that. There's like a whole business of this. Mm -hmm. So but it's not based in science. Right. Right. So what what is that about? You know, what what will shift us over? I would say exercise, exercise, exercise. You're kidding. I think the best possible exercise for your brain is physical exercise. You know, researchers used to think that the body-mind connection, and this sounds esoteric, but it's not, is a one-way street. They would think, when I'm sad, I get into sad body posture. If I'm sad, this will influence my body. But it is a two-way road. When you exercise, your brain releases lots of positive things, like the brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor. I example. love that. I don't know what that is, but I just yeah. say that's fabulous. Yes, and it helps you grow new nerve cell cells. And exercise will also remove cortisol from your body. And cortisol is a negative stress hormone that has a negative influence on our brain. If we, you know, our brain shrinks when we have too much cortisol. I want to go back to one sec for a second because you had mentioned mindfulness, and mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I I say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm trying to take 15 minutes out before the day starts and meditate, but. You can practice mindfulness during the day. So let's say you're in the situation where like your heart is beating. This happens like you got some negative feedback mm. or, you know, you're, you're just like kind of freaked out about something or something weird happens. What should we be doing to help us get back on track? There's one exercise I recommend we can all do together. You know, we can do it now. OK, it's called stop. I like that already. Yes. And what you do is you take a break from what you're doing. Then you take a breath. A so, big one like a... Really deep one. Because what it does is, as I said, the body-mind connection is a two-way road. So by breathing slowly, your brain is tricked into thinking you're relaxed, even if you're not. Huh. Okay, So it's kind of a way of tricking your brain into thinking, I'm relaxed. So you take a deep breath for as long as you want. You can make it quickly or... 
And then you observe what's going on. So you could think, you know, how is my body posture? How am I feeling? How is my conversation with Frederica going? Is my producer, does he want me to change something? You know, you can think of the, what's going on in the moment. And then you either make a decision to proceed as before, you say everything was fine, I just continue, or you make small changes. And that can be very powerful. I love that. Stop, take a breath, observe, proceed. And you call it like a, a little timeout. Yeah, and what I love about it, it's invisible. All of these stressed out executives, they don't want to be caught meditating at work <laughs> or using strange new AG techniques for regulation. It's invisible. It's like a secret weapon. Before we finish up, one thing I want to talk a little bit about is intuition, which mm -hmm. I was surprised to find in a book from someone who's a scientist. Mm -hmm. I really was. There's often this um, this desire to have mathematical science-based reactions, but intuitions can actually be helpful. Can you explain that? It all depends on whether you're an expert or not. When I talk about intuition, I mean expert intuition. What is expert intuition? Research has shown that experts make better decisions when they trust their guts, whereas people who are unexperienced should go for the facts and the rational analysis. All right, let's just look at that as almost like an investor for a mm -hmm. second. So I'm just a person who's an investor, but I'm, uh, you know, whatever, I have a retirement account, but I'm not an expert. And so my gut feeling is not something I should rely on. Like, I really think that stock's going to go up. You, I should not be that. Right. You got it down. And this is why, if you, we talked about the basal ganglia earlier, that's a part of the brain that stores our experience and our habits. So let's say if you've been a trader for many years, and I have no idea what traders are doing, but I just have, you know, and you do all of these trades every day, over time you develop you know, you can almost do it in your sleep. You just get a feeling of, like, you can't really explain why. You just got to do it. And mostly you're right. Because you're not making the decision anymore with your prefrontal cortex. You're making it intuitively with your basal ganglia. So the locus of where you the decision is made in the brain is different for an expert. But companies seem, and, and a lot of professionals seem to frown on this. And, and I even think of it as... Um, you know, even when I let's think about like an idea, like I'm an, I'm and I come on CBS News and I say to the producer, I think this is going to be a big story. And they're like, nah, not so much. But I know in the financial world that it will be just because of my experience and what gathers steam. And, yeah, I could be surprised. Mm -hmm. Is that the negativity bias that, against that or is there something else? I think if there's something that you can see that is called defensive decision making. People don't like they think intuition is something fuzzy. So if somebody makes a decision based on gut feeling, you're going, they're going to criticize you. If you made a wrong decision based on a gut feeling, they think they can come and get you and fire you. So people are afraid of that. The other part is that if you're shown to be correct over time, then that defensiveness on the, the other person's part is going to start to diminish, right? Yes and no. I do see that many people still want to see the reasons why because I can't understand your intuition. So, so you're still going to have to prove it. Many times you still have to prove it. Depends on whom you're working with. But I see like in a country like the U.S. where people like to sue each other rather <laughs> easily. Doctors, for example, they have to take the test. Let's say a doctor sees you and he just thinks something is off with your skin tone. Right. Or he just gets a feeling you might have a certain disease. He's still going to do the tests because if he didn't, you might sue him later if he did some right. treatment. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. 
The book is The Leading Brain. The author is Frederica Fabricius. And before we let you go, madam, you get to do my favorite ending question. So you said the best money decision you made was marrying your husband. He gave you the freedom to be like in, on your career, on your own, explore different things. So what's the worst money decision that you made? I think that was when I partnered with a person and made a very bad contract. Uh, we've all done that, actually. Right. If you're in business, that's something like, I don't know how old you are. I'll find out after. But I'm just <laughs> telling you that, that that's a, a mistake that everyone makes. I would like to understand, in your case, mm -hmm. did you have a bad feeling before you entered it? I think I didn't care so much. That was the point. I was so eager to engage in that project that I was just like, whatever. So the advice that I would give, and maybe you can give your own advice, is before you get into any sort of partnership, a lawyer actually gave this advice to me and said, you know, a business partnership, a contract, it's kind of like a mini marriage, and they're really hard to get out of. And you wouldn't just marry somebody without really thinking through what you're doing. So consider that you're about to get married and really sit back and as much as you want something, you want this thing to happen, think about really well, how's this going to feel in a few years or what do I see in this person? Are there some are there some red flags? Right. right. And so that's my advice. And my advice to everyone is to go get your book. I really enjoyed it. Work smarter, better, happier. The leading brain. Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Frederica Fabricius, thank you so much for joining us on Better Off. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. You've got two shots to get on the air. Tuesdays, we have the bonus call. And then today, on Thursdays, we release the listener question after we do the interview. Let us know what's on your mind, how we can help you out. Just send us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com, or you can tweet at us at Jill on Money, hashtag better off. Okay, right now we are talking to Mary, who's on the line from Phoenix. Hi, Mary. Welcome to Better Off. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. Um, so I am wondering um, the best strategy for investing um, in a secondary condo. Um, hmm. So the initial purpose of the of the condo would be to have my father rent it. And then down the line, it would just be a rental um, property for me and my husband. Got it. So how old are you right now? I'm 30. I'm almost 31. Oh, I won't tell anyone. Don't worry. Spou <laughs> and you said your spouse is how old? Uh, he's also 30. Okay. And dad's going to rent from you. Is he going to pay you market rent or give him a little deal? Um, I would give him a little deal. I would basically make it so that he would cover the cost of my mortgage and that's it. Okay, that's great. And so you already own a home, right? Correct. Okay. How much is the primary residence worth? Um, so we purchased our primary residence for um, $340,000. Mm -hmm. um, and we took out a loan for three hundred thirteen with a 3.75% APR on the mortgage. So you put about 10% down. Um, yep. Has the house increased in value in the time that you've owned it or not necessarily? What's going on in the Phoenix market? Um, it has increased um, and I think it's doing really well. Um, I just got notification um, via the property tax document that it has increased. Mm. Um, so I'm feeling good about that and it's a solid market where we're at. So I only feel like this will appreciate. Okay. So is it fair to say you bought it for three forty? What do you think it's worth today? Just guesstimate. Um, three sixty to three eighty. Okay. Great. 
you know, you you put 10 percent down. So uh, you're paying PMI, right? Yes. Okay. Have you thought about potentially because the value has increased to see whether you can get rid of that PMI because now all of a sudden your equity has gone up? No, I haven't thought about that. Just think about that. Let's put that in, like put that on the back burner for a second because you know if you were to get say a higher valuation if the, if the market really is hot and maybe someone went yeah. out and appraised that and if all of a sudden you got an appraisal of three ninety or four hundred then all of a sudden you can get rid of your private mortgage insurance. That would be kind of fabulous. It's just an extra thing you don't have to pay. But, okay, I know that's not the the, the center of the question. So right. how much do we have to pay for uh, this rental property that dad's going to live in? Um, so I am looking in the one hundred sixty to $200,000 range for the condo. And then because it's a secondary property, um, I believe that I would have to put 20% down mm-hmm. up front as opposed to the initial 10 that I put down on my property. So that would put me at about $35,000. Okay. So tell me about money that you have that's available for this down payment and we can figure out the best way to purchase the property. Okay. So um, let's see. I have about 30000 invested in Betterment. Um I have about 8000 invested in an IRA through Betterment. Mm-hmm. I have um, 10000 in my husband's IRA. I've got about thirteen, fourteen thousand 14000 with Vanguard. Um, is that a, I'm sorry, about, is, that, is that an IRA the, in Vanguard or is that non-retirement nope. money? Okay. It's non-retirement money. Great, okay. Yeah. And then I have um, about uh, 10000 in my checking and savings, kind of just what I use on a daily basis. Yep. And then my husband has about twenty in his checking and savings, and then we have about ten to fifteen um, in like a online investment. Um, okay, trading. So, like so Ameritrade. Um, the Betterment, the Vanguard, and the Ameritrade—that would obviously be the source. What pops out to me is a possibility for you as a down payment resource. However, I imagine, I don't know, I mean, you're young, so I'm wondering, you must have a bunch of gains embedded in this. So do you have a big capital gains liability in each of these accounts? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, so here's here's number one. I'm going to give you like the things that you need to think about. Okay. You have the money that's already saved. Right. I don't want you to go through and like I don't pull, don't pull equity out of your house now. The only reason why the only thing okay. I want about your current house is to just see if you can get rid of that PMI, which will free up your cash flow a little bit. But what pops out is that, you know, you've got thirty, forty three, fifty three thousand dollars in non-qualified accounts. Now, what mm-hmm. you you need to figure out is you look at those accounts and you say, OK, what's my cost basis? What did I buy this stuff at? What's it worth mm-hmm. today? Okay. Now, the difference is your capital gain and you've got to pay tax on it. I don't know if, what the capital gains rate is in your state and whether you know that offhand, but that would be tacked onto it if there is one. Okay. So okay. now what you need to think about is what's left over. So, hey, if I had this, these three accounts, they're worth $53,000 and I'm making this up because I don't know what your cost basis is for, you know, if you put a dollar in, then the whole thing is is gained, but you put something right. in, you invest it. What's left is what you would use for your down payment. You know, 45, 50 grand here works perfectly. Um, the only right. reason why I might just blow everything out is that when you're a landlord, you're going to need a little bit extra in your in your savings just to pay for stuff. You're going to be okay once dad gets there. But, you know, if you buy something, it's going to be an improvement that you want to make. 
is I don't know, but yeah. you'll just have to think about that. And okay. it's sort of a bummer because you've done such a good job, right? Wow, I got 53 grand. It's all saved up. Yeah. But you're just moving from one investment to the other, right? You're not buying it and saying, I'm taking 45 grand and going out and buying furniture, right? right. You're, you're making an investment. So I think that that makes sense. Are you and your husband both contributing to these IRA accounts on an ongoing basis, or do you have an employer-based plan? Um, so my husband has an employer-based, and he contributes up to his employer match, which I believe is like 4%. Mm-hmm. Um, I currently um, am in a contract situation, so I don't have um, an employer-based IRA. So mm-hmm. I contribute on my own, but primarily I contribute to my Betterment and my Vanguard account, and I kind of am leaving my IRA alone for right okay. now. Okay. Um, Well, I think that once you actually do this transaction, okay, and you really get a sense of like, hey, these are really the expenses associated with it, dad's taking care of it, and you know what your cash flow is. I do think for you, I might be interested instead of having a non-qualified account, I think that I probably would like you to actually put money in on an ongoing basis into a Roth IRA. And you can do that at Betterment. Yeah. You should take advantage of the Roth. It has a really good tax environment. And so instead of putting money into a non-qualified account, I would prefer you to do a Roth IRA. And once you see how your cash flow absorbs everything overall, you know, if you could put $5,500 into a Roth IRA and we can nudge your husband's contribution up a little bit, maybe this will happen because you won't have to pay PMI anymore. You'll have a little more cash flow. Yeah, I would. But I'd love for you guys to be putting away a little bit more money into retirement. So maybe for him, that means trying to get up to 10% in pre-tax contributions. And for you, it would be maxing out that Roth. And and I think right. hopefully you could be able to do that. That should work out pretty well for you. And, you know, just make sure that you're managing the property in a professional way because dad's going to be a renter. You're going to be receiving rent. Is that going to be something where you say, okay, well, I'm going to declare that rent or I'm going to use this as real rental property. I'm going to claim depreciation. All these things, you may want to talk to an accountant or a CPA so that you have a little bit of a better understanding of what you need to charge in rent to dad and how this could work out well for you guys from a tax perspective. Okay, that makes sense. Makes sense? Yeah. Go get me my condo. I'm coming to visit. <laughs> tell, right, tell, tell dad that there's a financial chick in New York who wants to come visit, all right? He'll, he'll be all right with <laughs> yeah, that. that. Yeah. Good, good luck. Thanks for calling. All right, thanks, Joe. Take care. Thanks again to Frederica Fabricius, who flew all the way from Germany to come talk to us today. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week. <laughs>